welcome to our 14th episode of Think Compliance. This podcast is a little longer than usual, but it's important. Today we're diving deep into conducting an internal compliance investigation. You know, with the changing landscape of healthcare and compliance, and with the government's focus moving towards having an effective compliance program, it's very important that your organization conduct investigations when potential issues occur. Welcome to Think Compliance, brought to you by Comply Guys and Compliatric. My name is Dagmar Austin, and today I'll be your host. Joining me is Amin Salim, a compliance professional, and Dave Monahan, co-founder of Compliatric, an integrated compliance program management solution. Now, it's important to note that the information provided in our podcast are the opinions of our presenters and should not be considered legal advice. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at thinkcomply. So let's get started. Ahmed, tell us why we are talking about investigations. Hey Dagmar, so it's it's straightforward and simple. So with the changing landscape we have here in healthcare and compliance and with the government really focusing, moving towards making sure every organization has an effective compliance program and you know, what is an effective compliance program is a completely different topic in general, but one of the key components is making sure that, you know, you are following up on concerns, right? And you are, you know, conducting investigations properly. It's important that your organization conducts investigations when potential issues, you know, arise. Um, let's go into that more. So what expectations do organizations have for investigations? Well, first and most importantly, a compliance office should always be aware of any potential attorney-client privilege issues. So when you have an employee stating that you have a physician purposely performing procedures that are medically unnecessary, right? Let's just say it's a, uh, or an overpayment issue or massive breach issue that may be reportable or, you know, maybe to a level that you have to uh, report it to media and obviously report it to government. You want to make sure that you're speaking to your counsel just in case that investigation has to be protected. Um, you know, we're going to kind of do a dive into ACP and the process behind it, but it's important that, you know, you talk to your attorney, right? If it's in-house or out-house, you make sure that you, you know, have the opportunity to see what issues they think you should be bringing forward and what issues they think you should go ahead and handle. You know, essentially, it's safe to say an overpayment issue that you identify within your organization is something you're going to want to relay to your attorneys. They're going to want to be involved in you know, the process, they're going to make sure that, you know, that they know what's going on and that they may be able to quarterback the entire uh, process. So, you know, many organizations may not have an in-house attorney. In that case, it's important to reach out, obviously, to your external counsel, like I just said, and let them know about any potential concerns as well. And what does the ACP do exactly? Um, So it's simple. It basically just protects your organization and internal documents. So you just want to make sure that you're protecting your organization. So for the attorney-client privilege to apply an internal investigation, your organization essentially must establish these four elements. So first and foremost, the person who sought or received the legal advice is or sought to become a client of the attorney, right? So meaning that if you're obviously going to your in-house counsel, you're obviously a client, but if you're going externally that you are seeking to get knowledge or you already are a client, 
the second bullet point would be the person to whom the communication was made is a qualified attorney, right? Or is an attorney's uh, subordinate acting on behalf of the uh, attorney. So in that case, a paralegal, right? You can't just go out to anyone who you think may or may not be an attorney and start speaking about the issue, right? You mm-hmm. got to make sure that they were a qualified attorney. Uh, number three, just making sure the communication at issue relates to the securing or rendering of legal advice. Um, and then number four, making sure that the communication was confidential, right? Don't go out and tell the entire world that you have an attorney-client privilege issue. Make sure that you address this concern, you identify the concern, and you're taking it straight to your attorney and keeping it between you and your attorney. You know, you also want to make sure that your organization has a policy regarding your attorney-client privilege process. You know, you don't want to be blindsided when you're trying to conduct a investigation under uh, privilege. And so make sure you work with your attorneys, make sure you have a process and they are aware and your team understands that process together. What else should be done? Well, make sure you mark uh, your material, uh, attorney-client privilege, uh, restrict distributing investigation materials inside and outside of the organization, and ensure that attorney oversight and attention um, as I stated previously, make sure that your policies are updated and you're working with uh, counsel on those. Wow, guys, there's a lot to be aware of here. Um, I wanted to mention for our listeners, please remember to work with your attorneys uh, for any steps that you may want to add. Um, but what else do we need to know going forward with the investigation process? Well, so after you establish whether or not your issue rises to the level of turning client privilege, you want to start planning your investigation. So, you know, we just spoke about investigations at the HCCA Chicago Regional Conference, and you know, I could not emphasize this enough. Planning is the most important step of your investigation, right? You know, you first, you want to understand and identify your issue, but once you've identified your issue, you're now able, and you know, you shouldn't be able to go ahead and plan out what it is the investigation process is going to do. And, you know, there's a lot to consider when you start an investigation. Exactly. Once you've identified the issue and you've determined whether or not uh, it's something that can be privileged, you must start identifying all the staff that have been involved. Uh, this will help you create a schedule and plan on who and when you want to talk to uh, in a particular employee. It also give you a clear understanding of what the issue is. Yeah, it's so true. So, you know, great point, Dave. Oftentimes I'm given a concern at work and, you know, when I start investigating, I find out that the concern brought forward wasn't actually related to the issue at all, right? Employees, as we all know, may fabricate or not understand an issue, right? And obviously it's our job in this planning phase, right? And this is the whole idea of setting up your investigation, making sure that you figure out what the issue is and what it is that you're actually investigating. And, you know, an important, important distinction you know, and this was something that, you know, I mentioned back at the conference was don't get stuck on the day-to-day minutia. Remember why we're here, right? Remember the importance of what we do. Oftentimes you may get a phone call of a concern or a complaint that may seem similar to another concern or complaint and you may feel like you don't have to really do the investigation. I like to say this, every compliance investigations like a snowflake. They may look the same, but when you really look closely, they're all very different. Important that you look at the issues and really understand what it is the employee is bringing to make sure you can understand it and investigate it appropriately. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, so now that you're gathering your documents and planning your meetings with employees, make sure that you have questions prepared. You know, don't go into an investigation meeting cold. Make sure you understand the concern as has been presented, and that you can speak intelligently to it, and you're prepared. Yeah. So, you know, take notes during your investigation. Don't assume that everything that's being said is something you're going to remember. So, you know, obviously there's a differing of opinion when it comes to do you upload your notes? Do you not keep, do you keep your notes? You know, how do you keep your notes? I can say this, if you're ever being given an issue that ends up being investigated by the government, you don't want to assume that you don't have to put notes and track your notes just in case they do ask a question on the investigation. You're not going to remember something that happened five years ago, or if you leave the organization, someone else isn't going to know, right? So write down the information and afterwards compile a summary that you can work with, right? And state what it was that any employees may have said or patients or just gather the information. And what are the next steps? What do you do next, Simon? So depending on the size of your organization, you'll kind of have to just determine uh, who the investigation and uh, the issue is concerning, right? So there are times that you may defer to a leader in another department to answer questions, right? So if you have a uh, issue dealing with privacy and you're trying to understand the process of how this privacy issue occurred, right? A patient uh, received wrong discharge instructions and you're trying to understand how this happened. You may have to work with your ED manager or director to figure out the process, right? Um, you also may have to pull some data uh, within uh, your organization, right? If you have a billing concern that's been brought up and you can't figure out why this individual, you know, was billed inappropriately and you start noticing a trend, you may have to work with your coding or auditing team to figure out what's going on. Has this been, you know, a thing that's been going on for a while? Are you going to extrapolate? How is this going to work? And then roadmap, you know, those key players and how you need their help. It's important that, you know, when we talk about the planning portion, you figure out what the issue is, and then you start figuring out who you need to go to, what steps you're going to need to follow, so you have this roadmap that you can just follow and begin your investigation. Yeah, and then once you have that roadmap, you know, um, then you've already determined, you know, who needs to help, um, if at all, and if you have your meeting set, then it's time to start fact gathering. So obtain any and all documents related to your concern, like any audits, claims, bills, employer patient statements, emails, et cetera. Compile all of this information and uh, get it into your uh, investigation portfolio. Is there a special or specific way that you need to be compiling all this information? Well, so it's pretty imperative that you have some form of central database that you're actually tracking your information, right? You may be using a shared file on uh, a drive on your computer, or if your organization has a resource, right, you may have an occurrence reporting system like the one that Compliatric offers, right? The idea is that you're able to use this central depository to track your notes, track any documents, track any meetings that's been going on within your organization. So in case this issue does arise later in case the government comes in, in case you need your statistics for your compliance committee, or you need to explain this to senior leadership, you have all this information within this database and you can pull it. And it helps your investigation, it helps kind of streamline and kind of roadmap how to handle your investigation as well. Yeah. And what, what's next? 
So once your investigation is complete, I mean, once you've kind of done all the hard work and you've interviewed staff and you've identified the issue and you've determined whether or not it's ACP and you've kind of come to the resolution, it's time to pull your organization policies and procedures, right? It's, it's, in, it's basically time to determine whether or not the issue that was brought forward is a violation of any of your organization's policies and procedures and whether or not it's in violation of any rules and regulations uh, between the state and federal guidelines, right? So it's important that you know how to follow up with employees using your policies, right? If they violate any policies, see if your uh, correction, action, or sanctions policy has a process, then determine what you need to do to follow up. Yeah, that's a great point. So when, once, you've, once you've done that, once you've determine that a particular law or policy of the organization has been violated. It's time, uh, you know, to draft your report and any findings and follow-up needed, um, you know, particularly also, uh, you know, directly related to, uh, to the policies and maybe where a gap uh, could have existed. So, uh, you know, basically putting together a complete corrective action plan if needed. Yeah, you know, after you close out your case, this is something that people really don't talk about too often, and it's a very important note, and a very uh, good distinction. Make sure your staff is aware of the issue, right? Make sure within your corrective action plan, you talk about educating staff, and not just the staff member that may be involved. You may start noticing trends in certain issues, right? I know when it comes to privacy issues, typically they may start trending, right? One staff member does it, multiple staff members may or may not do it. Um, reach out to that manager director, right? Make sure you're educating their department on what's going on. Obviously, don't disclose any corrective actions or names of associates that were involved, but it's okay to let people know what the policies of the organization are, or what rules we have to follow as an organization are, and you know, and talk about that when you kind of give them a follow-up. Yeah. You know, it'd be a, a, a good idea, and one thing that we talked about doing was maybe reviewing a, a case study uh, to understand how an investigation, you know, could have helped, and kind of hot off the presses is a um, September 13, 27 uh, release from the Department of Justice um, in regards to the Medicis Health Network, which uh, owns and operates Jamaica Hospital Medical Center and Flushing Hospital Medical Center, both in uh, Queens, New York, where they've agreed to pay four million dollars to settle allegations that it violated the False Claims Act uh, by engaging in improper financial relationships with referring physicians. So, Ahmed, let's talk about that a little bit and, and what you think, uh, how an investigation could have helped, uh, you know, prevent this from happening in the first place. Yeah, so it's important that compliance professionals are, you know, brought forward issues, right? You talk about a lack of reporting. You can't have an investigation without a, you know, associate, senior leader, whoever in your organization, a patient, bringing these issues forward. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the issue that, you know, we don't hear about, right? We're talking about investigations, and investigation would have definitely helped, right? If someone brought this forward to their compliance professional, if there was a proper financial relationship to referring physicians, you know, everything we talked about today, going from attorney kind of privilege to making sure that you're meeting with appropriate staff members and physicians to speak about what it is that's going on, reviewing contracts, reviewing payments, pulling that data and putting it all to a central depository. That really would have helped in this case. And 
we don't know and we haven't been able to see anything that determines whether or not compliance was involved. But when we look at this as a case study, it is one of those things that we, you know, we put all things aside and talk about what we could have done um, if this was occurring and what suggestions, recommendations we would, you know, put forward. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point, um, you know, and, and relating back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of whether or not it violates policies, you know, that's one question. What policies did the organization have around uh, their relationships with the referring physicians? But having worked at a large health system that received a over $20 million fine um, for, for uh, uh, similar um, types of things, granted it was uh, self-reported, um, but still in the end, um, you know, what, what I was able to determine in that, in that process were the technicalities related to these types of arrangements and whether or not, again, you know, being a systems person, um, you know, whether or not the organization has proper uh, systems, meaning, you know, contract management systems. And, and I don't mean just a, a repository that helps keep track of the, the general contract itself. I mean a system that actually does some of the checks and balances for the technicalities, um, you know, in order to ensure that um, the red flags are identified early in the process and that compliance is definitely who's driving that process. I mean, sure, there's a legal review portion of it, but the compliance technicalities are part of that uh, review process, um, whether it's uh, paper or electronic, but obviously electronic has some distinct advantages. Thanks, you guys, for your insight today. I really appreciate your time and insight. Thank you, Dagmar. So thank you for listening to Think Compliance. Reach out to us on Twitter at ThinkComply. For questions, comments, etc., reach out to Ahmed Salim, ahmed.salim at complyguys.com, or Dave Monahan, dmonahan at compliatric.com. Join us for our next episode from wherever you get your podcasts.